Pack Warriors, Tanse Sego Anibuju, Kwe Ninda Luizi Pampometer, and I'm the host of this show, The Warrior Life. This podcast is a show about living the warrior life, a lifestyle that focuses on decolonizing our minds, bodies, and spirits, but at the same time, putting energy into our cultures, traditions, and practices. And that means living, asserting, and defending our sovereignty, our territories, and our nations. And Native warriors are critical to nation building because it's about protecting our people from the state's assimilatory laws and its damaging extractive practices. Today, we are fortunate to have a member of the Warrior Society with us, Kanahu's Freedom Manual. She's a fierce defender of Native rights and comes from a long line of warriors, her late father being the infamous Arthur Manual. She's literally one of my heroes because she is real, she's boots on the ground kind of warrior who I truly admire for her courage and conviction in defense of her people and her lands, which benefits the rest of us and our uh, native territories. And in fact, it was my son Mitchell who heard her speak in Ottawa earlier this year, who was just blown away by her directness and honesty about what is happening all over Turtle Island and what kinds of actions we need to do to resist. Thank you, Kanahus, for being here with me today. Thank you. Uh, like, it's a, it's, a, it's a real honor. And I know most people know who you are, but for the few, like, we have some listeners that are in Australia and New Zealand and the United States. Could you, um, could you introduce yourself, like what your nation is from and, and how you prefer to introduce yourself? Hello, everybody. My name is Kanahu Speski. It means Red Woman in Tanaka. I'm both from the Sukhwatmukh and the Tanaka nations. It's nations that border each other. We're mountain people. We've lived and survived in the mountains. We come from the glaciers and the lands of the spilling waters. Here in so-called British Columbia, Canada, in the interior, the inland, we come from the only inland temperate rainforest in the world. And right now, I'm speaking to you all from Blue River in our unceded Sukhwatmuk territory at the site of a proposed man camp um, for the Trans Mountain Pipeline, which is now Canada and Crown-owned. They're pushing this pipeline through 518 kilometers of our territory. And so this is where I'm at, the land of the spilling waters, and I'm so grateful to be here on your show. Oh, well, I mean, it's uh, really, there are so many people. When I started doing this podcast, I got so many messages from people that I didn't even know saying, hey, make sure you get her on this show because she's a real warrior. People are really seeing what you're doing on the ground. And I know that, you know, um, th this isn't hard. It comes as a as a big risk to you. And and I know um, uh, you're also a member of the Schwetmick Warrior Women's Warrior Society. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Like, wh what is that? Um, the Sukhumuk Women Warrior Society. Mm -hmm. Traditionally, we had women as a part of our warrior society. And you see this in our Sukhwatmuk war dance as the young men are dancing and singing in this in this dance and the women are surrounding them and war hooping and hollering. And this is how this dance goes. This is an ancient dance that's still practiced today. And, and the women are called in 
And so we are called in in battle when we're needed. And we say that we are the last line of defense. And right now it's women that are standing on the front lines with their children and their babies um, to defend our water and our land. And the Sukhumuk Women Warrior Society, the current one right now that I'm a part of, we our first action was against the Trans Mountain Pipeline. And we painted our, our war paint on and confronted the federal you know, agents that came in to push this pipeline with the federal Indian bands in the area around Kamloops, our Sukhumuk um, bands that are in the area and to address that there is no consent that we've never had and there will never be consent for this pipeline to go through. There's too much at risk. They're talking about bitumen from the Alberta tar sands. This is toxic. This is what engineers say if someone goes down or collapses on that pipeline that nobody should walk towards that person. That's how toxic it is that other people can also get very sick and injured from any type of leaks or spills that this bitumen or any type of um, this condensate or bitumen that Kinder Morgan and them are using for this line. Um, there's already an existing line. This this pipeline went in in 1953, and this pipeline didn't have consent back then in 1953. It was, you know, they just barely list, lifted the lo- muzzle laws that we couldn't, you know, organize or speak about our unceded land issue here in BC or to hire lawyers to address this unceded land issue here in BC. We've never signed treaties and. We still refuse to take part in their modern-day treaty process here in British Columbia. We we are warriors. Um, our our children and a lot of the women warrior society birth their children out of the system, burn their birth their children at home, and this is what really I guess as a woman warrior you. You really have to talk about decolonization and what does it look like for us to really go back to our ways as mm-hmm. oh sorry I'm just getting a call and I'm just going to turn this off sorry no problem but uh, but I join I join um with my sisters my blood sisters my cousins all the women that stand to defend our lands um, our, our goal is to continue to have a pristine land base so our future generations, our children could not only, you know, live off the lands, but also benefit off of the lands. And right now, the Canadian government has, you know, benefit economically off of our territories, our so-called resources, and our lands and our territories since they first got here. I mean, the area that they're bringing this pipeline in through this Yellowhead Pass has been an uh, area that we've continued our ancient trade with other Indigenous peoples on the other side of the mountains. And and it was the Hudson Bay Company that, you know, took over our existing trails and trade routes to bring and get furs to London. And they did this to, to bring those furs and have it six months they're six months faster. And now today we see these same trade routes and corridors through this Highway 5 and this Yellowhead Pass all the way down here towards Kamloops that are also benefiting off of the trade, these trade corridors. These are our coyote trails, and now they want to bring this second pipeline through. 
they already have this first existing pipeline. And what they want to do is twin this pipeline and triple the capacity to bring in 890,000 barrels per day from the Alberta tar sands. And it's tech frontier mine, tech mine that wants to bring in this, um, pr or provide and supply this bitumen for this pipe. This pipeline is just a transportation, is the transportation of this bitumen. They don't even own that bitumen. And so it's transporting it from the Alberta tar sands. And we are saying, no, we don't want that bitumen coming through our lands. We already have this existing pipeline that we are resisting right now mm -hmm. and saying we've never given consent for. And we want people to know how mm -hmm. dangerous this is. And if we don't commit to whatever it may be, two, three years to stand in defense of this pipeline, then we can pretty well expect that there's going to be spill after spill after spill along this line. And that would be contaminating all of the rivers and creeks that it's threatening to cross at this moment. Well, yeah. And I mean, that's that's one of the things that I'm not so sure that everyone understands because you hear people in the media talking about, well, you know, these pipelines are so safe and we have state of the art, you know, technology and we have state of the art emergency response systems. And, you know, everybody's overemphasizing the risk. But in fact, you know, the, the truth of the matter is everyone is underemphasizing the risk because every single pipeline is guaranteed to leak and some of them pretty catastrophically. So this, the question, you know, this conversation that's being had is, is even twisted in some of the mainstream media that it's not about if, it's, it's literally about when and what and who are the people that suffer for it because it's definitely not international or transnational corporations who have houses far away from any of the development it's always on native territory yeah so this whole continent like that's what yeah. we're saying we need to take back our land and this whole continent this whole continent is ours for the mm -hmm. red peoples for indigenous peoples and and indigenous people and groups are I don't even want to say groups, but Indigenous peoples are organizing all throughout this, this continent. And, you know, it's things like this, like these podcasts and different grassroots organizing and media that even connect us with those people that are fighting, our own red people that are fighting in other parts of the uh, of the world, like the Mapuche. Like there's mm -hmm. so there's so much people all around the world that we need to continue to connect with that we have even the same terrain, the same species, the same everything and we begin to ad adapt and evolve to be the same type of freedom fighters as well like we have to stand up if no no one else is going to stand up for us and i you know looking and reviewing some of the questions that he had put before me before this podcast mm -hmm. and really thinking how are we going to you know organize and i'm here with my children i'm here mm -hmm. stopping this man camp and i'm here with four of my children they range from 16 years old to to seven years old and or eight years old we just celebrated her eighth birthday oh. and and she was here right on the front lines on her birthday and so you know it's the sacrifice that we make and and i could be going and i could be enjoying a, a life but really i wouldn't be able to because my mm. mind and my spirit is calling me to defend land and and to show the young people it's in 
it's the inspirational thing is when social media gets all around the world and next thing you know there's 10 year olds and 11 year olds that are just coming to you and just wanting to be around you and yeah. and just so excited and wanting to hear your war cries of the day on Facebook posts and different things and that's what's that's what's inspiring and those are the young people because those 10 year olds in 10 years are going to be 20 and it's how we're going Going to educate and form, you know, help to to form and be the, those people, those educators. Because you know, if we had those educators throughout our whole life, like I had my father there, mm-hmm. but everyone says, "Oh, you're so lucky you had your father there to teach you." Mm-hmm. Because if I didn't, who who else is there to be teaching me all of these things that we have title to this land that supersedes Canada, that's more powerful than any white man's title to any land? Fee simple, no, that's that's so you know, like. Don't ever mm-hmm. talk to the province. Like those things like that, like that they've always, you know, ingrained in us. Well, that and that, it's going that's going to take us. To- yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, and, and what you just said is like, why, you know, and it, it, the funny thing is, is I was never into social media I really didn't know much about it but it was actually my kids who knew that I was out there you know I could be talking in a community or I could be talking in a university or I could be you know meeting with different indigenous groups in different places but um, they were the ones who said mom you know you could reach so many more people if you use Facebook or if you use Twitter and they were very young at the time and they didn't know they didn't really understand everything that I had to say about my message, but they knew enough from what I was teaching them that it was important that we all connect with other warriors. And so they said, mom, use social media because then you don't have to rely on if you get a, you know, an interview in mainstream media someday or the small number of people that you get to meet with in, say, like one First Nation. And so then what you just talked about, you know, about making sure that our kids are are part of everything that we do that this isn't just adult business this is this is how traditionally our kids became and were educated in how to be warriors they saw what we were doing they they understood how important it was and so you know your your point is and you know people like you and I are lucky like I had my family who was like super politically active and always going to protests and and even though I didn't understand it all you know, you learn over time. They were what they were doing to my mind was educating warriors. Whereas what the state does is they educate their state citizens, you know, so they educate Canadians how to be a Canadian and how to subscribe to those laws and that history and you know, European ideologies. And so if if we don't be the ones that are educating our warriors, then our kids are just gonna grow up thinking that they're Canadians as opposed to being independent, sovereign people. Um, So you were talking about the fact that you bring your kids with you and that they're very much involved in everything that you do. And uh, we were just talking about how important it is that, you know, kids be involved in, you know, our resistance because ultimately they're going to be the warriors that are carrying this on in the future. And I think you said you had four kids and they range in age from like eight to 16. So what do they think about all of this? Like what What's their understanding about what the issues are? Well, my children, they've been born freedom babies and they're not registered with the Canadian government. They don't hold a birth certificate or a passport or a social insurance number. And 
they're here on the front lines with me. My children, my oldest, 16, was born out in the bush and in the mountains, in the Marble Mountain Range, at the house of uh, old-timer, uh, one of our OGs, we call him, Philip Grinder. He passed on now, but he was the mountain man, and I sought him out to have my baby there. And because I had warrants out for my arrest from resisting against a Sun Peak ski resort expansion in our moose hunting areas and medicine harvesting grounds um, by our current day Indian Reserve was impacted. And I was targeted as well at that time and I had warrants out, but I was pregnant and I refused to go to their hospitals. And there was another young lady that was a part of Native Youth Movement at the time Elena Tom, and she was one of the biggest inspirations for me because she was younger than me and she was also pregnant at the same time as me. And she said she was going to have her babies and they were going to be freedom babies. I said, what is what is that? And she said, I'm not going to register them. I'm not going to the hospital. I'm not going to get an ultrasound. I'm not going to their doctors. I'm just going to have our babies like we had our babies before white men came here. And I, and it was it brought tears to my eyes and she invited me out to her birth and it was actually my father that drove I don't know how much hours six hours from Nisqanlith to Shalath to go be with her while she gave birth to her baby and I myself was five months pregnant at the time and her her birth is coming up real shortly on May 10th the first of the the modern day freedom babies that were born and she was born and it was so beautiful. There was fir boughs and cedar boughs and, you know, a nice a bathtub and a bed. But at the foot of the bed, because it was outdoor, it was a fire. And you could see the, the snow-capped mountains right there, just picture perfect. And mm. that's where she gave birth. And it was so powerful. The, it happened to be during the Stathlium gathering and where there was you know, hundreds and hundreds of Statlium people and the whole gathering knew that this baby was coming and it was just a couple of, you know, maybe a mile away from where the gathering was happening and this baby was born and the whole nation knows this young woman now. She's She'll be 17 years old. Her name is Khuhumaka. We call her Baby X when she was born, but her name's Khuhumaka. And you know, it was from that point, and then I gave birth to my baby, you know, out on the land, out on the territory, um, without any type of intervention from the medical, you know, the Western Medical Hospital or um, births, how people have births now in the hospitals. And, and, and we showed the other young women that we can have our babies, um, how we always had our babies out on the land. And both myself and Elena, we spent many years and decades now um, training and learning health and medicines and birth and child labor. And we even traveled to Belize, uh, Central America, to into the Jaguar Sanctuary to learn from one of the, one of the Mayan midwives there. So we've been on this journey of, of bringing babies into this world and catching babies and bringing back our indigenous midwifery practices and skills. And we call ourselves birth keepers. And there now there's a lot more women all around. And I find that women warriors and land defenders that have all gotten into traditional midwifery 
mm-hmm. and being midwives on their own because of wanting to raise our children this way and as their first imprinting into this earth and their first ceremony into this earth to be as as more most connected to the earth as we can and being born out onto the land and being able to breathe that fresh mountain air is something that I've always wanted for my children and my other babies as well. They were born in some very sacred places and I wanted um, to birth my youngest, the eight-year-old, in her father's territory. So we traveled all the way to Puerto Rico, to Borique and the Taino territory to birth this baby in the jungles. And that was my youngest, the one that we just celebrated her eighth birthday the other day, Ana Oni. She was born down in, in Puerto Rico in these beautiful, beautiful lands of the Taino people. Wow, and, that's that's amazing. I mean, that's, it seems like, you know, deco- it's like decolonization in its true form when it starts with baby. Yeah, and... We learned from a lot of the elders all around when we said, who was the last people to to practice, you know, midwifery to be the midwives of our nation? And they would be, oh, this person, this person, and they're long gone. But I know this elder, she went to a bunch of births at home and this one. And so I, we went and sought out the elders that still held a lot of the knowledge. And, and we learned certain things, like one of my elders it was uh, Wolverine and his wife, um, Kia Flo, that said, no, when your babies are born, you put that bear grease on their head as soon as they come out. And so that's something that we have, have done. And, yeah, they said, I was like, oh, why? And she's, oh, just it'll always be black and they'll never go bald. (laughs) 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 But I know that there's like a lot of power behind, you know, that medicine. And that's what we, we greeted our babies with as they came into this world and we put their, you know, the umbilical cord and, and, and the placenta into the biggest ant pile that we could find. And that was from our elders that told us to do so after the babies came and the placenta came out. And there was other things like our, the, the umbilical cord is in the highest tree of the, the highest peak in the mountain. And, to connect them to this land, to this territory, as far as they can see is, is their homelands. And so they're connected through birth and through those first original ceremonies. And, you know, growing up into this, into this world where colonization has impacted us so much and the rest of the mainstream society is sending their kids to public school system and like, I refuse to send them there. And, and really having to look at our own education. And I heard it from my grandfather, my, my grandfather, George Manuel's speeches and, you know, Indian education for Indian indigenous peoples. Like we have to, you know, define what education is to us and what is it that we want our children to be able to leave this nest or leave our, into this world with, with what type of knowledge do they need to have and, and really having to build our own curriculum of what we want to teach them. And and the, their father is is a teacher, and he and he went out and and sought a lot of knowledge so he could pass it on to his children, and they formed the Indigenous Life School that a lot of other parents that are the same mentality that don't want to send their kids to the public school system are also a part of this Indigenous Life School, and it's all land based and and experiential, and the last 
you know, they traveled down to uh, other families down in Guatemala that were also a part of the life school school gathering last year. And last May, actually, my children were traveling back from Guatemala and the, and the Mayan territory, and they were detained in Tapachula and Chiapas and Mexico because of they didn't have so-called proper Canadian documentation that they wanted them to have and they were traveling with our nation documents and they end up holding them for 10 days <gasps> and I traveled down there right away I was there the day after and um, but they held detained them with their dad so their father was detained along with my four children in Tapachula Mexico which is the biggest Mexican immigration detention that they have and it was it was scary and and really, you know, empowered empowered us once again, you know, how, what does it mean to be sovereign Indigenous peoples? What does it mean to be able to travel f- freely on our lands? And this was before the big migrant caravan that was coming north, but talking to the human rights defenders and, and the people working on the border issue down south, that, that Tapachula is Trump's big border because it's the bottleneck there from the south coming up into the north and that's why Tapachula there was so much people from Africa and Bangladesh and India and everybody that was coming through that border trying to get to the U.S. or Canada or or get to freedom as they call it (laughs) up to our indigenous territories in the north and so I have had many battles you know just just having to stand our ground and have our kids you know, stand with the mm-hmm. with the no Canadian identification, and but they got deported eventually, and they flew them into San Diego and back to our free, so-called freedom, and we and we traveled home together from there. That was actually one year ago that that was happening. Oh and, my goodness! And um, but I had a friend just ask them recently if my younger children if they would do it again and. And they said, yes, was it worth it going down to Mayan territory? And would you do it again? And they said, yes, it was worth it. Well, I think this is a good place to leave our interview with Warrior Woman Kanahu's Freedom Manual. Make sure you tune in next Friday at 6 a.m. for part two of this interview where Kanahu's talks about action on the ground. Thank you all for tuning in to my podcast show, The Warrior Life. If you like this episode, please consider supporting it by subscribing, liking, and sharing each episode. Please also feel free to leave comments and I'll get to them as soon as I can. I'm currently hosted on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and Spotify. Till next time, keep living a warrior life. Wallalan.